Our text this morning is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 1 through 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahira, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp over against it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are entangled in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took six hundred picked chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel as they went forth defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahira in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they were in great fear. And the people of Israel cried to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be still. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go on dry ground through the sea. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. According to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female he created them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now the reason that God made us in his image and then told us to fill the earth is because, according to Numbers 14.21, it's the Lord's purpose that the earth be filled with the glory of the Lord. The image of God in man is not so much meant to draw attention to the glory of man over the animals as it is to draw attention to the glory of God over man. 
we bear the stamp of an infinitely higher being upon us in order that we might so live that he be magnified. But, we learned a few weeks ago from Genesis 3 and Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, all have sinned and fall short of glorifying God the way we should. That is, everyone in the world, apart from the sanctifying influences of the Holy Spirit, is bent on glorifying himself rather than glorifying God. We are in love with self-reliance, not God-reliance, and from that root grows all the sin in the world. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Ever since the fall of Adam into sin, the bent of humanity has not been to join God in his purposes to fill the earth with his glory. It has been bent on keeping God from doing just that by making sure we stake out our turf for glory, not his. But we also learned three weeks ago that God, with a double view, on the one hand to his glory... And on the other hand, to the salvation of his people, took steps to reclaim this rebellious creation. He planted a little mustard seed about 4,000 years ago. That is, he chose one solitary man, Abraham, and he made that man some astonishing promises. Absolutely certain promises and absolutely free. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Through you will all the families of the earth be blessed. I will make a covenant with you and with your descendants after you to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And then a transaction took place between God and Abraham that has changed the course of history. Abraham believed God and God justified Abraham. That is... Abraham took God at his word. He staked his life on the reality of those promises, so much so that he was willing to sacrifice his son, the son through whom only that promise could be fulfilled. And God delights in that kind of faith, and he justified Abraham. That is, he acquitted him of all his sins, past, present, and future, wiped his slate clean. Or in other words, God declared to Abraham from now on, I am for you, 100%, not against you. All my galaxy-sustaining power is now in the harness of my mercy, not in the harness of my wrath anymore towards you, Abraham. Now, the New Testament picks up on that beautiful transaction and makes it the model for how all men and women the rest of the time get right with God. If we have the faith of Abraham, that is, if we give up on self-reliance and self-confidence and yield ourselves in childlike reliance on the promises of God, he justifies us, he acquits us, he wipes the slate clean, he looks upon us as pure. And that's the best news in all the world. I can't imagine anything I'd rather walk through Elliott Park neighborhood saying to people than this. 
You know, if you just quit relying on yourself and rely on God, He forgives all your sins and is for you throughout all eternity. Now, all those precious gifts, justification, persevering sanctification or child-likeness as it grows into Christ-likeness, and final glorification, all that is purchased for us in the cross, in the death of our Lord Jesus when He died for us and took our punishment and repaired all the injury that we had done to the glory of God. 2,000 years earlier, God blessed Abraham, but He purchased that blessing 2,000 years later. Now 2,000 years afterwards, He purchases redemption for Abraham Christian Piper. And we all know today that the blessing of justification and sanctification and glorification were bought by Jesus in His shed blood. Abraham didn't know that. He did not know how God could justify the ungodly and still be a just God. He simply left that in God's hands and trusted His Word. We don't have to. We look to Jesus. Now, between the election of Abraham and the coming of Jesus Christ to purchase the blessing of Abraham, there were 2,000 years of history. History in which God dealt almost exclusively in a redemptive way with Israel. Why? Why did God wait 2,000 years before He sent the Son into the world to die for sin? And why during that 2,000 year period did He deal almost exclusively with one little insignificant nation instead of having a great commission after the call of Abraham? I think the answer suggested in the New Testament is that this long history of Israel was necessary in God's wisdom to make some things clear to the world. To make clear the meaning of the incarnation at the fullness of time when it actually happened. To make clear the meaning of the substitutionary atonement on the model of the Passover. To make clear the meaning of justification by faith apart from the works of the law after a 2,000 year history of failure on the part of the Jews to try to earn their salvation. God had a view to the whole world when he worked with Israel. Now we can illustrate this, for example, from Romans 3.19, which says, Now we know that what the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that is to Jews, in order that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world held accountable before God. You see the connection? What the law says, it says to those who are under the law that the whole world might be held accountable. Whatever God does with Israel, He does with a view to the world and the effect that's going to have on the world. And we should not question God's pedagogy. He is wise. He knows the best way to reach and educate the world. Now the question, therefore, we should ask as we read this history of Israel, which we're doing now until Christmas, is... At every series of events, we should ask, what did God have in mind for the world? And for us Gentiles, 4,000 years later in particular. That's the question I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we zero in now on 
the most significant event in Israel's history, the most memorable, the most worship-inspiring event, the exodus out of Egypt. Now, the story leading from Abraham to this event is very familiar. You know it. Abraham had a son, Isaac, according to promise, a miraculous birth. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, the younger. Yet, also according to promise, Jacob supplants Esau, gains the blessing, gains the birthright, and his twelve sons then become the twelve tribes of Israel, for Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel when he wrestled with God. And then, through an amazing turn of events, these twelve sons with their clans of 70 people find their way to Egypt. Then they multiply over a 400-year span. They get so big and powerful, they are a threat to Pharaoh. And a new Pharaoh arises who does not remember Joseph. And by the way, a little parenthesis here, I'm taking time out in our series through Luke tonight to preach about Joseph and John the Baptist. The Lord hit me with a message at the breakfast table about three weeks ago. I just had to share with you. So I urge you to come back and hear it. The Pharaoh didn't remember Joseph. So he puts these people in bondage, keep them safe. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord hears their cries, selects Moses, sends Moses to liberate them, and he does. And that brings us to the Exodus. Now, of all the questions we could ask about this amazing event, we could just spend weeks and weeks. I want to ask this one question. Why did God do it? What was the motivation for the Exodus? for bringing his people out of bondage and taking them to the promised land. Now keep in mind, not far behind that question is also the question, what did God have in mind for the world, not just for Israel? I think there were three motives that moved God to bring his people out of bondage. I want to use the analogy of a tree. Root, trunk, and branch. A tree is a unity even though it has roots and trunk and branch. It's one tree. And so these three motives are one unitary movement on God's part. The root motive, we'll sum them up and then we'll look at the texts. The root motive is God's passionate commitment always to act for his own namesake and to display his own glory. That's the root from which all other motives spring. He wants glory in this world, and he's going to get it. You heard that in the text. You will never get a God glorified who doesn't keep his word, however. If a God does not keep his promises, he is not a glorious God, and no one will honor him. And therefore, the trunk, the trunk of the tree springing out of the root is God's commitment to his promises. He will never fail. Otherwise, he's an unglorious God. And then... Growing out of the trunk are the branches of blessing that come to the people to whom the promises are made. And this is perceived by them as love, the blessings of love. So those three motives, commitment to his glory, commitment to his promises, and love, pouring out blessings upon his people. Now, I think it's tremendously important that we keep this order straight. That is, keep the tree with its roots in the ground and its branches in the sky. We live in a day where... Even in evangelical Christendom, the tree is on its head. 
and the branches are smothering in the ground and the roots are drying up in the sun, we are told, and you have heard it again and again, what moves God is the value of men. He sets value upon men. There's truth in that. But how often do we hear this truth? What moves God is the value of His glory. I will not give my glory to another. He loves His glory. He wills that it be displayed in the world. He wills that people rise up and praise Him. How often do we hear that? Isn't that just kind of buried down in the ground somewhere, smothering? And I think if we don't get the tree back on its head, right side up, the branches of blessing will wither because they're cut off from that root of God's most fundamental commitment, namely his commitment to his own glory. Now let's look at these in the text themselves. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we'll see these very quickly, these three motives. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Here, Moses, standing at the Jordan, ready to go into the promised land, looks back on the Exodus. And he gives two reasons why God did it. Namely, the trunk and the branches. Deuteronomy 7, 6. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So verse 8 is clear, isn't it? God loves you. That's why he's bringing you out of bondage. He has good things in mind to do for you. He aims to bless you in the promised land. But also, he is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers. Specifically, Genesis 15:13 says, Know for sure, Abraham, that your descendants will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be slaves there. And they will be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation which they serve. And afterward, they'll come out with great possessions. He had promised he would do it. The exodus is a promise kept. So that's the second motive. That's the trunk of the tree. But now most, I think, most of us stop there. That's enough, we say. God's love is enough to motivate him. His his promises are enough. But we miss a massive substructure in the scriptures. A massive foundation on which all of this rests. Isaiah makes that foundation clear. Isaiah 43, 7. I created Israel for my glory. Isaiah 43, 21. I formed this people for myself that they might declare my praise. Isaiah 46.13, I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Isaiah 60.21, your people shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The shoot of my planting and my hands that I may be glorified. 
says the Lord. You see what moves God at the root? Now, let's look at that in the Exodus. Turn to chapter 10. God aims for three groups of people to give him glory. Israel, Egypt, and all the world. And we'll take them in turn. Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Here's the purpose to be glorified in Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son how I made sport of the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. God aimed to deliver this people in such a stupendous display of sovereign, authoritative power that it would never cease to be told in Israel. And it hasn't. To this day when they sit around their Passover table, it is the exodus that they celebrate. And we do at this table in a few minutes. But not only was Israel in view. Turn to chapter 14. God aimed so to save his people through such a mighty display of miraculous power, bringing them through the Red Sea, that Egypt, the rebellious land, would know and turn. It's very interesting at the beginning of this chapter what happens. God turns Israel back so that they look trapped in the wilderness. And says in verse 3, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, Oh, they are entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Likewise, in verse 18, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God's purpose in delivering Israel, therefore, was to go beyond Israel and bear witness to Egypt. I am the Lord with sovereign power. Bow before me. But that's not all. Turn to chapter 9, verse 15. We were in view at the Exodus. God had Bethlehem Baptist Church and the Twin Cities in view when he did this amazing thing. He says to Pharaoh, verse 15, By now I could have put both my hand, put forth my hand, and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have let you live, or I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. All the way to Minneapolis. This event was not done in a corner. It was done that all the nations might fear, that their hearts might melt, that their knees might buckle, and they confess that Yahweh is the true God and the only hope for salvation. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, tells us about a prostitute. Her name was Rahab, and she lived in Jericho, a city in the Promised Land, 
40 years after the Exodus. And the story tells us that Rahab was a woman of faith in the living God, saved. And she saved the spies when they came, the Israelite spies. How did she get saved? Listen to her words in Joshua 2, 9. I know this is what she's saying to the spies. She's hiding them in the brothel there. I know the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. That's how she got saved. The reputation of Almighty God drying up the sea at the Exodus ran before the Israelites, melted the hearts of the kings, broke the heart of Rahab, and saved her soul. God had the whole world in view when he drowned Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And here we are, 4,000 years later, declaring the glory of that same God on behalf and on behalf the basis of that same mighty deed. 